I think the kids are staying in. They didn't rush out. Uh, we have some coloring packets and some crayons for kids, and I love it when kids are in service. Um, and we have some brilliant young people and some missionaries in the making uh, that are in our kids group and in our youth group. Uh, as we begin today, I just wanted to share, uh, you know, I, I made two things I said I'd never do when I was in high school. I'd never go into the military, and I went into the military, and I would never go to college, and I went to college. Uh, but I started pursuing ministry, and I started attending Liberty University. I loved Liberty University, still love it. And one of the reasons I did is that they wove Christianity in, into every subject. Uh, if it was math, if it was math and Christianity, truth of God is involved in that. And I had to take a mandatory literature class, and Christianity was in literature. By the way... Some of you, as you're preparing uh, for maybe a, a career, whatever it may be, in pursuing college, the college you attend matters. Um, there are secular colleges, and there are Christian colleges, and there are colleges that say that they are Christian who have departed from Christianity. If you send your kid there, they could deconvert your kid. Uh, so a lot of prayer in deciding that. Um, but while I was in this class, this literature class, we had to read many short stories. I wish I could share them all with you today. And, um, but one of the stories in particular that I remember, I have a very vivid memory about things, uh, was a story called The Destructors. Guys, is that slide working? Boop. Maybe the batteries are out. Help me out. Back up. Uh, so we have this new wand. I've been using this for a few weeks now, and it's supposed to uh, slide forward. And uh, so I don't know if it's working. But anyway, uh, we had to read a short story by Graham Greene called The Destructors. And in this story, it's, the story, it's a post-World War II story. Uh, ten years after World War II and the rebels of the war, there's a young group of kids, teenagers, uh, who have a gang, and the Commons gang, and they, they plan these little things, these teenagers, and they do minor robberies and things like that. Um, but they're, you know, opposed to this one man who lives in the one house that's left standing from the German Blitz. The Blitz was when they came in, they're bombing England. And this house happened to uh, survive. And they don't like the man, Mr. Thomas, who lives there. They call him Old Misery. And they decided while he was away on holiday, the vacation, a bank holiday, they were going to get into his house and tear it apart from the inside and destroy the entire house. Uh, one of the kids that leads the gang, his name is Trevor. They call him T. He has this grand idea to do this. And old misery happens to come back early from holiday and catches the kids destroying the house. They actually lock him in the outhouse. And it actually enrages them, and they're continuing to tear things apart little by little throughout the house. They don't even want to leave the walls standing, because they think somebody could come back later and rebuild from the inside. They tie a support beam to a truck, and a, truck, a, a, a delivery truck that comes by, they tie the support beam, and at the end of the story, the truck moves and tears the entire building down. The man that's driving the truck laughs, and old misery makes his way out of the the outhouse, and sees the destruction. Now, there's a lot of themes in this story, but there's something that stands out in particular that I wanted to share with you today. Is that there's a famous line in the story that says, streaks of light came in through the closed shutters where they worked with seriousness of creators. 
So as they're destroying, they perceive themselves as creators. And destruction, after all, they say in the story, is a form of creation. A kind of imagination had seen this house as it had now become. So there was a plan, there was an imagination to destroy this beautiful home. Now, the reason I share this story with you today is because it carries within the theme that we are seeing things that we are seeing unravel in real time in our present culture. The theme of destroying something good, something that represented what was before, uh, something that represented history. They are destroying something good and calling the destruction good. We have entered into the time of culture where we are deconstructing. They, the house is constructed. They deconstructed it. They destroyed it. They are the destroyers. We're seeing a deconstruction of history. Uh, we are seeing a deconstruction of morality. Things that, which were normal and considered normal morality, they are deconstructing. We are seeing a deconstruction, actually, of Christianity. So one of the themes here that I see is something um, that has come to be known in our culture, uh, faith deconstruction. Raise your hand if you've heard that. And if you haven't heard it, uh, you need to be aware of it because people are doing it, experiencing it, and teaching it, even if you don't know the name of it. Over the last few years, there have been many stories of people who were once Christian they have built a platform of followers on social media and their books and ministries, music, YouTube, um, whatever it may be. And then they came to a point where, and in my mind, is how do I maintain this platform and reach more people and change my views? Because if I stay on Christian values, I'm going to lose people that are paying into this, my followers. So we've seen many people, and I'm not going to name them all today, who have deconstructed their faith after they've been built a platform by Christian funding and move on to a deconversion, that they deconvert from Christianity. So what is deconstruction? Let's talk about this. Uh, faith deconstruction, one definition, if you were to look it up, is pretty innocent. The process of re-examining the faith you grew up with. I'm always examining what I believe, but I'm measuring it with the Scriptures. What are things we were taught in church? What are things that are biblical? How can I grow as a Christian? There's some things that were traditional uh, that were not necessarily true, that we can move away from those things. Uh, another definition is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. So if you're re-examining your faith and you see things that you don't necessarily like, and ultimately people that are deconstructing their faith end up leaving the faith. Now I have a definition I want to share here. It's to deconstruct your faith is to take your previously held beliefs, uh, to rethink them, and strip it down based on what one assumes to be good according to present cultural norms or values, which typically leads one to reject true Christianity. I've reviewed my faith. These are the things the church actually believes. The culture doesn't see those as good values. Actually, it perceives them as bad things. And I strip them away. And ultimately, I turn from God, from true Christianity, to an imagination, a false Christianity. 
Now, in all of this, what we've been sharing over the last few months is that Christianity is a totalizing view of reality. The things that I believe about Christianity affects every area of my life. This is what it means to have a Christian worldview, and ultimately a biblical worldview is that the truth of God affects every area of life. Now, most Christians have compartmentalized God. I want God in my pocket to control Him, but I'm going to continue to live the way I want to live. But Christianity is to affect all areas of life. Now, I share this with you today because deconstruction has led into deconversion. As one deconstructs their faith, they end up deconverting, and they end up telling people about it. We are seeing the rise of deconversion testimonies. Now, when you come into church, you'll have somebody share their testimony, how they came to believe in Jesus Christ, they've turned from sin, their lives are radically changed. A deconversion testimony is one who said they believed in Jesus, and now they've turned away from Jesus, and they tell people about it, and it is celebrated and it goes viral. And people are sharing it, and it is affecting all ages. Everybody. People who are old that have been in the faith for years, people who are young and in the faith, they are deconverting and celebrating deconversion stories. So the people are sharing these testimonies of where they have rejected Christianity, and ultimately, they still keep their platform. They still have money. They still have listeners. They've expanded the platform even though they've rejected. Typically, it is to a point where they, they review human sexuality and say, well, it is unloving to tell people homosexuality or transgenderism is wrong. And they still want a platform with those things, so we need to look at that. Now, I call deconstruction, deconversion, a death work. And several months ago, we went through a sermon, and I talked about the rise of death works. A death work, as we defined it, would be that life has been valued for centuries. Christians value life. A death work is to take something that is valuable and to destroy it. Abortion is a death work. And that people would celebrate it as a right and something good. Pornography is a death work. You take something that God has given us that is good, that uh, sex between a man and a woman in a marriage, it is perverted, uh, and we, we celebrate that. It is destroyed. People are addicted to it. They give money to it. It, it fuels uh, uh, child pornography. It fuels rape pornography, disgusting things, and perversion. It is a death work. A deconversion is a death work. Why? Because you get went from someone who had light and life and now they have rejected the truth and the light and life of Jesus Christ. It is the story of someone who was alive and now is spiritually dead. It is a full reversal of the prodigal son. His son was lost, and now he is found. He was dead, and now he is alive. One who is saved is now returning and becoming a prodigal, and now they are spiritually dead. They are spiritually lost, but it is celebrated. This is the culture we're looking at. No one would read through the, the story of the prodigal son and, and rejoice if he went back into the world. But we are seeing that actually happen in our culture. And at the end of the day, it is nothing more than a rejection of Jesus and true Christianity, historical Christianity, and it's trying to make it sound more spiritual and more virtuous. So in a culture that is actively rejecting historical Christianity, historical good things, morality, and even common sense sacredness of Christianity. As Christians, we can still build our faith on a firm foundation. Uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
You can still disciple your children to follow Jesus even though the world is running from Jesus. And we can still have a confident faith. Now we're going to look at some Scripture today. We have Colossians chapter 2. Allison read Scripture for us today. Thank you, Allison. And she was reading from Ephesians chapter 4, which is saying that God gave us the apostles, the preachers, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints. That we would do the works of ministry as we are equipped and being equipped in the truth so we are no longer cast back and forth and pulled away by every wind of new doctrine, uh, by the evil schemes of the, the wicked one, the deceitful one. You know when it says schemes of Satan, it is the Greek word that means schematics. That he is making a plan. That there are things that Satan does to deceive us and wants to pull us into that Deception. So we're going to be actually looking at Colossians chapter 2, and Paul is dealing with some of the same things. But before we do, it is the first Sunday of the month. If you are new with us, we repeat and recite uh, something each month from, Tim- from Paul's letter to Timothy about the Scripture. So repeat after me, all Scripture, all scripture. is breathed out by God, out by God. And, is and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. All righty, let's get into the Word of God here. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, to the Colossians. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a Bible, someone who studies the Word of God, and it says, Therefore, They would usually say, you need to know why it's there for. What's it there for? Why is it saying there for? It's a transition in the Scriptures. Paul has written in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, declaring who Jesus Christ is. He actually is God. Jesus is God. Go back and read Colossians chapter 1. All things were made by Him because He is God. And he talks about doing ministry. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, who is God... The Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. That is, that is perfect for us today. You were taught things in Christianity that were true. We are to continue and walk in those things. We were taught, abounding in thanksgiving because we received the true, the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We abound in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Church, let's pray together today. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that we can come in and just hear your truth. And Lord, we submit to your commands today. Just as they did 2,000 years ago at the Sermon on the Mount as you were speaking and people sat to listen. And they heard your truth. And they wanted to follow you. And I pray today that you give us the spiritual ears that we need to have. That you give us um, spiritual eyes to see your kingdom. Lord, that we are born again. Born in truth. Born from above. Lord, that we receive the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And Lord, that we are built up in your truth. That we stand firm in the faith on the foundation of who you are. And Lord, that we teach these things to others. 
There are things that we've been taught and that we teach that to build and make disciples. We pray that your word goes forward and it does go forward with power, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that there's a metamorphosis, that we are no longer the old man in, in Adam, that we are the new creation in Christ, and that we are your true followers in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, last week we spent time in the Word and, and being reminded that we can know that we are Christians. Uh, we can know this God. I keep repeating uh, Romans 8.28, for we know these things. We, the body of believers. Now, the apostles taught this together. By the way, you're going to have 12 apostles, and they don't conflict on anything. How is that even possible for 12 men to get along on everything in truth of the Word of God? That is a miracle in itself. We teach these things that were passed down to us, and it is based on the apostolic witness. The early church, well, they, were teaching the, they were being taught the teachings of the apostles. They were continuing to worship and pray and have communion, and they were teaching the teachings of the apostles. They didn't change these things. They all agree. And we are reminded of these things that we can be confident in the things of God. And the gospel has come to us, not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. That we believe this. We've come into an age where people say you can't really know, and you can know. And I want you to know, these apostles who did life with Jesus, saw Him dead on a cross and rise again, they believed it. They saw it. We have evidence for the resurrection, irrefutable evidence. We believe the testimony that has been passed down. There's no question. You can question it. You can doubt it. But it is true, and we can have confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ. If you experienced the life transformation of the Holy Spirit, who can tell you otherwise? Who can tell you? If you've received the goodness of God, who can really make you doubt that? And as we're getting into this, this is what I was questioning this week. Can I really leave God? Can I unknow Him? Now, apostasy is real. People leave the faith. We're going to talk about some of these things. People deconstruct their faith, have a deconversion experience, and walk away. And I'm wrestling with that. If I am in love with God, I'm in a relationship with Him, how can I mess this up? I cannot make my mind unknow God. All I can do is re-transform Him in my mind and redefine Him. Um... But at the end of the day, I would, if the only way to break relationship is if I stop praying, if I stop going to church, if I stop reading the Word. Uh, as some people have said today, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Um, but let's apply that to marriage. You don't have to go home to be married. But if you don't go home, there's going to be a problem. Right? The same thing with Christianity. Uh, if I don't go to church, if I'm not worshiping Jesus Christ, if I'm not reading the Word, if I'm not in communication with Him, it's going to affect the relationship. But we're seeing people depart from God. So why would somebody want to deconvert from God's salvation? As many are deconstructing their faith and deconverting, which means basically they want sin and a life free of accountability and to pretend spirituality. That's really what's happening. But even though this is taking place, Christians can plant and grow on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. You can have a solid foundation. It does not mean you can answer every question. I can't answer every question an atheist is going to put out there. 
And the only reason an atheist wants to get into conversation with you is not to be converted, but to deconvert you. And it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know every answer. I don't know, I don't know it all. I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. For example, you could review a tree in the backyard. You can say there's a tree there, a seed was planted, they put water on it, and it grew. But you can exhaust your, your knowledge. You can't get to a place where you know it all. How much water did it take for that tree to grow? You cannot know those things. How much nutrients in the soil? How long will it live? How long did these things take? You cannot know everything. In fact, the church is not in the business of answering everybody's questions. We are in the business of proclaiming the truth of God. And people believe. Now, I'm a big believer in apologetics, which means we are defending the faith, but answering questions that people have. But apologetics can't save people. What it does is it creates space for faith. Because what happens is people, are, are, they get hung up on an intellectual thing in their mind that they learned in school, and schools are deconverting Christians, or they have a doubt in their heart, or there's been a tragedy, and these things get in their heart, and it's like, how can these things be? And we do our best to answer these questions to create room for faith. But at the end of the day, you cannot answer everybody's questions. They have to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's build a firm foundation. The first thing I want you to see is the origin of deconstruction. Uh, this is nothing new. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now notice this, you don't have to pursue Satan. Satan we know is as a roaring lion, lion moving around seeking whom he may devour. He's, come, he's moving through the earth trying to find people to destroy. But he finds the woman, he said to the woman, what? He asked a question to plant a seed of doubt. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Boom, seed of doubt is planted. Now, Satan is a deceiver and is good at what he does. He's been deceiving people for thousands of years. He is masterful at planting seeds of doubt and causing faith deconstruction. Uh, we doubt God and His love. We, we begin to doubt His goodness. We are filled with insecurities that corrupt our relationship with God and with others and with the church and teachings. And before long, we're caught up in sin, and sin leads to death. Uh, we learned in the scriptures the deceitful schemes, the schematics. The Satan is in the business of creating a plan to find a way to take you down in your faith. And he does it predominantly by making you doubt the goodness of God. As God said, you can't have everything. Oh no, my happiness is going to be affected by this. I can't have everything the way I want it all the time. God must not be good. I mean, that's really what we're dealing with. What is the highest value of our culture right now? Happiness. That if I don't have my happiness, God must not be good and I'm out. If I can't have 100% of happiness in my marriage, I want a divorce. And people are walking away because Satan has planted that seed of doubt. And Jesus tells his disciples in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to only, only kill or still kill and destroy. I don't have it here. John 10.10, 10, President Reagan. Uh, favorite verse. Guess what? I, I said President Reagan. I must be political. Anyway, uh, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It splits ways. What is the message of Jesus? It is life that you can have abundant life. Satan's objective is to destroy your life. 
to steal, to kill, and destroy. To deconstruct your faith that you walk away and your faith is destroyed and your life is destroyed. Satan's faith deconstruction, his process is to destroy you. The reason he wants to destroy you is because he can't create. He cannot create, so he destroys. Now, in the New Testament, there's an example of this. Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, Satan wishes to sift you as wheat. Um, But I have prayed for you that that you're going to go away, but that you come back. I've prayed for faith construction. I've prayed that your faith would not be destroyed. And when I thought about that sift, that Satan wishes to sift you as wheat. He wants to shake you up, plant seeds of doubt in your life, and remove, sift out the faith. That is faith deconstruction. Satan's been in the business of doing that for a very long time. Now, there are many things that Satan can use to sift your faith, and one of them, I don't have the list up here, um, one of the things that he can do is maybe someone you looked up to in the church sinned. I've heard story after story after story. I was at a church, I was hurt, I looked up to a youth leader, a pastor, and this crisis happened. And pastors are imperfect, and Christ followers are imperfect. That's why we point people to the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Uh, When you elevate people, they're going to let you down. They're going to mess up. But I would also say, as we expect forgiveness, we should give forgiveness. Um, that people are going to make mistakes and that you're going to see things you don't necessarily like in people. But that's something that Satan uses to plant the seed of doubt. Uh, seeing hypocrisy in someone's life, which we should war against that. Jesus would always say, beware of the hypocrites. We should not be hypocrites. If we believe this, we live this. If someone says they believe it and they're not living that the way, either they're not saved, they're caught up in sin, or they are a fake. And we have to consider those things. But that's affecting people's faith. Uh, Things in church history that people didn't like. People will talk about the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. Again, things can be done and said it was done in the name of God. It doesn't mean that it was. Again, we point people to Jesus. I can't answer every question of history. Now, I will say this. We're in a culture where we're deconstructing history and people that we once looked up to as heroes, we're we're telling them that they're bad guys. And I want to explain to you why. We're looking at history through the lens of the present. And if you look at history through the lens of the present, guess what you get to do? You get to play safe and judge history and say they must have not have been good because we found out this thing about them. And so you always win in that. I'm always good, but those people in history were bad people. And so we're seeing a historical, this history deconstruction of history. But people will bring up things from history. What about this that happened? What about that? We cannot answer all of those questions, but we know we can point people to Jesus Christ. Another thing is a difficult text found in the Scriptures. How can this thing be? I mean, one of the ones that's brought up, how could God tell them to go into a culture and kill everybody when they entered the Promised Land? That's brought up. How can a good God ask for anyone to do that? Well, when you study history... And you study what was going on, and God, God always has the right to pronounce judgment. I don't have the right to do it, but God can pronounce judgment against an evil nation. And the way it is, is that they actually, at times, would kill children because kids were taught the history, and they would come back with vengeance, and that it was passed down to generational curses. 
and that they're going to continue to do the evil thing. And that's what we learned a lot of time in the Old Testament history. You learned the people believed what, uh, they did evil, and the next generation did evil, and it got worse and worse. But there's little things like that. Well, how does that coincide? And Satan will use that one thing to make you doubt the entire thing. You give up the entire good because of one thing that you doubt. And there's good answers for a lot of the questions. A tragedy. How could a good God allow this tragedy to happen in my life? I met two people at one church. One uh, was a pastor who had moved into open theism. Uh, open theism means that you do not believe that God is in control, that He's not sovereign. He can't really know what's going on. And so this one pastor, he had an autistic kid, and he said, God would never want me to have a kid like this, uh, so he must not be sovereign. And so Satan plants these seeds of doubt, and they begin to judge God and determine who God is based on their tragedy. Another woman uh, went through a divorce, a bad situation, and she said, you know, if God knew all, he would have he never led me to marry this person. And it eliminates free will when you do those things. They begin to blame God. It's all God's fault, not sin in the world, not me. I never take accountability for my own sin. It must be God and that he wouldn't do those things. But people begin to judge God because of a tragedy. I was sharing this uh, this week. A lot of people say, if God loves so-and-so, why would they allow them to have cancer? And why would I have to watch my loved one die? Number one, everybody in this room is going to die. One way or another, cancer ends up finding its way. And so God is in the business of saving our soul, not healing every situation. But there's an apologetist, a, a Bible teacher, who is a, uh, an expert in the resurrection. And I've shared some of his information on Easter that he teaches us of evidence of the resurrection. His wife had cancer. And this man of faith who's written books on the evidence of the resurrection begins to doubt and question God. And he went to God one day. He shared this in the testimony. God, how can you allow me to watch my wife suffer and die? Now, some people would depart from the faith because of that. And he said, God said to him clearly, I watched my son suffer and die on the cross that your wife could have eternal life. And so we have to shift from our looking at the world and judging God and look to what God has done and then judge the world. Uh, seeing sin made normative in our culture and then looking at Christian teachings. And they're not going to do like this. They're going to collide. They always have. What has happened is people are accepting the teachings of the culture and making them doctrine and then saying this Christian thing is not true. They deconstruct their faith based on cultural norms, cultural values. By the way, there is a term today called minor attracted that's becoming normative. And, and Christian would move against that, that that's wrong uh, to rape a kid. And, and thankfully, a lot of the culture still sees that as evil, but there are people arguing for it. They're just minor attracted. That is an evil that people are trying to speak to. But let's think of all the other cultural things that we're making more uh, valuable than God's teaching. They are going to clash. And then people turn from the faith. Peer pressure. You know, the pressure of the culture that pushes you. And you're not going to answer every question. I can't answer that. I can only tell my story that Jesus Christ has saved me. But along the way, as we build up our faith, we'll be able to answer questions better. Um, 
Allowing someone else um, to speak into your life can allow you to have deconstruction. Uh, a professor, for crying out loud. I've known so many people that went to college, believed, brought up in the church, went to college, and a professor just made one or two comments and destroyed their faith, and they turned from Jesus Christ. Again, you should know the college your kids are going to. So what can we do in a world of deconstruction, deconversion, and crumbling faith? What we want to do is build our faith on a, the right foundation, which is in who, church? In Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 7. Again, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, I grew up in the church, I believe in Jesus Christ, I was baptized, I received him. And notice here, not just the idea of him, you received Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Kyrios, he is Lord of your life, so walk in him, because he is in your life and you're in him, walk in this, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And we need to make sure we're doing a good job of establishing people in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now we are to build our faith and life on the firm foundation of Jesus, the Son of God. As some are deconstructing, we are constructing a faith, a real faith, on a solid foundation. And that is Jesus Christ. Now what can we do to build this firm foundation? Number one, uh, first, we must have faith. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Now last week we learned that we, when we hear the message... We believe, we call upon the name of the Lord, and we are saved, which means you are converted. You're not deconverted. You're converted. You become a Christian. You have a new life in Christ, and His Spirit resides in you. Two, you live by that faith. I believe in Jesus. I'm on that foundation. I'm saved. I'm walking this thing out. I trust in Him. I rely upon Him. I cling to Jesus. I cling to Jesus in everything. Three, we are to be established in the faith. We are to trust that um, the Christian beliefs we were taught, not changing our doctrine along the way. We're talking about solid, historical Christian doctrine. Not just traditional things you do in the church. We're building our faith on those things. Number four, we are to grow in that faith. I think a lot of young people that leave the church, and others for that matter, were never built on that solid foundation. They were never equipped in the truth. I mean, you're looking at what we do, church uh, worship service for an, a little over an hour each week. If somebody comes to a class, they're getting two hours. Two hours in competition with 168 hours of the week. And, and kids are in school a lot longer than that, and they're around peers a lot longer than that. But our duty in the two hours that we have, one at the least, two at the most, maybe three, uh, is to build them up. Is that they're to know the things of God so they can grow in their faith. The apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. That would be a great prayer. Lord, increase my faith. Uh, Peter tells us to add to our faith. We add knowledge to things of God. We should know something about God. If God is so good, then why evil? How do I answer that question? Isn't that the main question everybody's asking? If God is so good and powerful, why does He allow hurricanes to happen and people to die? Because you don't see the big picture. And you would be surprised how a tragedy will open somebody up for the gospel. Now, I can't solve every problem, but watch. When a, a tsunami hits another country, they will allow Christianity in to do work, to help Otherwise, they're not letting them in in mass, and all of a sudden, they're allowed to come in, help people, and they can share the gospel. If God is so good, then, then why evil in the world? And this is something you need to ask somebody first off. 
You're questioning God and His goodness, and why would He ever allow evil? Do you believe in abortion? Yes, you believe in abortion, so you believe it's okay that you are good. Do you consider yourself good? Yeah, I consider myself good. You think you're good, but it's okay to murder kids. Why would you question God's goodness? But all of a sudden, they want to question God. Now, they won't question Big Bang. It is our God that gets questioned. Now, I believe in the Big Bang. Well, ask Him some questions. Now, what is He saying? Nothing. So here it is. Why evil in the world? One, God wanted to create the ultimate good. What is the ultimate good? Love. So how can we love? We have to have free will to freely love people. God is not creating robots that have to be forced to obey Him. So He gives us free will that we can freely love. Adam and Eve were given one commandment. Do not eat of this fruit. It is a test of their relationship, their faith in God. They disobey. Because of their disobedience, sin arrives in the world. The world is fallen. The world has free will. And most people, even though they're going to question God and His goodness, are evil and do some good. They like to think they're good, but when you start questioning them and what they do, do like a lot of guys will say, you know, I'm good enough, I don't need this religion thing. A lot of uh, women's husbands will say, I don't need that church thing, I'm good enough. Do you look at pornography? Check their phone. I thought you said you were good enough. You're looking at pornography. You need Jesus. You need to be saved. We need the God that saves us. I don't want to stay too long here. Uh, I can tell when people are like, He is speaking to me right now. Isn't He? If you've got these bad things in your life, and you're questioning the goodness of God, maybe you ought to get the bad things out of your life first. And I would say repent, turn to Jesus Christ, and be saved. Um, five, we are to contend for the faith. We battle we fight for the truth. We tell people the truth of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.9 says, contend for the faith. Colossians 2.8, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Six, hold on to your faith. 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Because they allow lies in, their faith is shipwrecked. It is deconstructed and destroyed. Seven, stand firm in the faith. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Again, Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm in these things that we believe. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. And church, we're going to prepare to close. I'm going to ask Jay to come as we are preparing a time of prayer and worship and a time of confession and seeking God. Now, I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount earlier, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching, and we have five chapters, five, six, and seven. At the end, he summarizes everything, and he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was what? Founded on the rock. Founded on Jesus Christ. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The destruction of faith. You know what I love about the Sermon on the Mount, this, this piece here about the wise man and the foolish man? I love it because both, um, both built a house. 
Now, one built on sand, one built on rock, but both faced a storm. The rains came, the wind, the flooding came, a hurricane is hitting this house. But the only one that stands is the one who built their faith on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and does the things that He teaches. Now, here's the thing, church. The foundation has always been Jesus and His truth. And here's the thing. I wanted to share this. God gave me this this morning. John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Miracles. And they're following Him. I mean, there's a whole story. He goes across the water. He's walking on the water. All of that happens. They follow Him around on land. They catch up with Him. And they try to, they want to make him their king. And he begins to teach them from the illustration of feeding them. Uh, That bread that fell down from heaven was not because of Moses. It was me. It pointed to my body. And he tells them, I am the bread of life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is to say, you must take Jesus into your life. And he says, and some of them are like, huh? That is a hard saying, Lord. He says, does this offend you? And it actually, it literally says this in the scripture. Many of his disciples walked away and followed him no more. And he turned to the 12 and he asked them this question. Will you also go away? And Peter answers, no, Lord. Uh, Where else can we go? You hold the words of eternal life. And church, that is where we are here in the 2020s. Either we can walk away offended or we can stand on the firm foundation. There's nowhere else to go. Jesus Christ holds the words of eternal life. So let's stand together. We're going to sing. Let's pray. The altars are open. If you want to come and just spend time with God and recommit your life to Him, whatever it is you need to pray about, come and pray.